begins. And people who make New Year's resolutions, <laughs> and you guys start to laugh because you realize that so many people make New Year's resolutions like, I'm going to get in shape. And you know how that normally works out? Really well for a gym because they go by this membership like January 1, and they use it to January 7. And then the gym gets to keep the year's membership fee and doesn't get any use on their equipment. Because they go up there and they're like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do this. And they get up the first time and they're like, wow, whoa, that was early. And the next morning they're like, yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to snooze just one time. Just the next time it's like two times. Oh, I don't know if I got time to work out. I'm just going to halfway do it today. And then pretty quick they, they begin to compromise. And they begin to taper off. And most people's New Year's resolutions don't go very far. But I begin to look up, what does it take to become an Olympic athlete? See, I know what it takes to make a New Year's resolution and not follow through. I can do that. Like, right? uh, that one, I've actually done it before. I've covered that. You know, look at the next year. Like, what do I want to accomplish this year? Like, what should I improve as I get a chance to look at my year? And you're like, well, last year I said I was going to read more. Did I read more? Oh, not really. Like, I love the information in the books. I hate sitting down to read. So, you know, you look at these different things. Okay, so I know what that looks like. But what does it look like to actually become an Olympic athlete? And as I begin to look up some of this stuff, somebody, somebody made this comment. He goes, you know, if you've ever watched the Olympics and thought, I could do that, he says, if so, you've likely never met an Olympian, let alone spent a week in his or her sneakers. He said, yeah, it helps that they've got good genetics. But the biggest thing, he said, is not their, what they're born with, but it is their commitment to their sport and perhaps most important, the way they train. In fact, sure, there's people who do a few exceptions who do things differently. It is common for athletes to invest four to eight years training in a sport before making an Olympic team. Now, for some of you guys, you're like, sweet, I've been playing basketball since I'm four. So, like, okay, let me, let me tell you what it means when they say that they've been training. Because many of these Olympic athletes plan out their training schedules annually and up to four years in advance to make sure that they reach their goals. Can you put up the first picture of Katie Ulander? Okay, I may be butchering her name, but okay, this chick right here. So Katie, I, as I was looking up Olympic athlete training um, stuff, they actually had some of her stuff. She competes in, um, they call it skeleton racing. So she rides, next picture, this little sled. So she gets up at the top of the hill, starts running, dives under this thing, and goes flying at about 80 miles an hour face first and has to try to steer it and go through this course faster than anybody else. So she goes through, what does it look like when they say that they train for four to eight years? What does a training day look like? During the summer, um, she has a packed schedule. From 9.30 until 12.30, she's at the track running sprints. Then she takes a break for lunch, hitting the weight room from 3 until 5.30. Afterwards, she tends to her body by stretching and spending time in the cold tubs. By 7, she's eating dinner. And by 8, she's studying the tracks and looking at past races. So with all of this training, she's got several different World Cups and different things that she's, that she's achieved and she won. She went to the Olympics in 2014, where she came in fourth place by .04 seconds. Like, that is a lot of work. And this is not uncommon. As I begin to look these things up, I looked up a whole bunch of these different schedules. It says most of these guys, they'll go and they'll have 
two different, they'd call, they like, well, they only work out twice a day for roughly two hours a piece. Like, that's still four hours of working out. I'm like, oh, no, no, that's, that's their one workout. Because they, they sit here and they go, they do that six times a week. And then their strength conditioning usually lasts for another hour and a half. And then they do that three or four times a week. And then they also get extra work th- workouts, which are anywhere from 15 to 45 minutes and focusing on their individual needs. And then he goes through going, then they have sessions with sports medicine, uh, sports medicine for rehab or recovery work. And then they have special meetings with the proper, for proper nutrition, um, hydration, quality of sleep. They have like this, you have to eat this list. You have to do this much, this crazy stuff. As he goes, begins to go through this, you have to sleep this many hours. And they've got these crazy routines. And, I, and I'm looking at this and I, and I went through and I found uh, Shani Davis. I may have butchered his name, but picture. All right. See this fellow in the USA uniform? He does, he does, he's the speed skating. He goes around and around in a circle on ice really fast. Really, really fast. In fact, next picture, he did it fast enough that they gave him medals for doing it. So he, he achieved medals. And you go, what does it look like to train? And I found a blog post of his from the off season. This is the off season. Uh, July of 2013, he tells, of a six-hour training day, including mountain biking at the top of a mountain, he describes his off-season training as biking canyons, lifting weights, and, of course, skating four to six hours daily. Many Olympics athletes, no matter the sport, train like this in their off-season. You have New Year's resolution. (laughs) And you have off-season. I'm just going to devote, you know, nine, ten hours today to uh, getting me ready for the actual season. And I begin to look at this and go, okay, there, there's a difference here. And what is the difference? And, and, and part of it's this, this wholehearted commitment that I have a goal. And I am going to press towards that goal. And I begin to look at this because 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And I mean, you kind of get look at this idea of we are supposed to train. We are supposed to train ourselves for godliness. And we get to decide, am I going to be a New Year's resolution, Christian? Or am I going to be an Olympic athlete type Christian? And there's this this entire different mindset in the way that they do things, in the way that they live. And the Bible makes a point to go, you know what? These guys are training, and they're going around and around. He does all this training so he can do a circle faster than anybody else on a pair of ice skates. So that he can get a gold medal that says he's awesome. He goes, but you're competing for something so much greater than that. And, and And I begin to look at this. And I was reading um, and heard about Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000-hour theory. And for most of you guys, you're probably looking at me like, who's Malcolm and what's 10,000 hours have to do with anything? They did a study about awesome people. When I say awesome people, you guys are awesome, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about awesome as in they have achieved what other people dream of. And he goes, what makes the elite separate from the rest? Whether they're a basketball player, a football player, a violinist, a pianist, like what separates normal, good, 
great, and world-class. And he's like, is it, is it like, hey, you need to be the third generation to do something? Is it, you know, what, what is it going to come down to? And so they begin to study some people. And in fact, they went to a, a very prestigious music school. And they begin to study those there. And they begin to go, well, how good is everybody? And they had, you know, kind of found out who was the elite, who was going to go on to, to be world famous, world class. And they actually studied, in particular, the violinists. And who is going to be um, paid to be a violinist, but not going to quite be the world class. And who is going to probably just teach music and, and who probably was not going to use this again. And, and they begin to, to, to do this. And they said they begin to ask them different questions. And in amongst the questions, they begin to ask them about when they started and how much they practiced. And they discovered that here at this school, most everybody had started at about the same time. And at first, everything looked about the same. But as he went on, all of a sudden, their their training began to change. And he discovered that the best ones had practiced upwards of 10,000 hours. He said those that had practiced over 10,000 hours were world-class and then he said there was like this massive gap between the, the elite and the great, or and the good. They'd practiced 4,000 hours. And then he went, began to have the breakdown of as people begin to add up and go, well, this is how many hours I spend a day, how many hours I spend a week, and how many years I've done this. And then, it, you know, at this point, I changed to this many hours. And he began to say, you know what, we discovered that nobody in the elite category had only put in 2,000 hours. He's like, we thought we would find some people that were just good. It was like, you know what? You were born with it. You're, everyone in your family is a musician. You just have it. Like, you just pick it up and you're just epic. Like, you are just the epitome of awesomeness. But he goes, we didn't find any of that. Everybody that we found that reached world class, he said, they put in the time. And he goes, when you look at the, the lower categories, at first it seems to make a difference because some people are coordinated and some people aren't. You go to teach someone sports and some people are like, oh yeah, I'm getting this. And someone else is like, bam! I go, that's your face. That's the Paul, you know, keep them apart. Um, and, and it takes some people a little bit more time at first, but he says, when it came down to it, those that we saw that put in the hours, though we didn't find anybody who put in the 10,000 hours that here at this school that wasn't incredible. And we didn't find anybody who was incredible who didn't put in the hours. And, and as, as his study went out and a lot of people have begun to go, you know, so I can put in 10,000 hours and I can become an awesome. And it's partially true. How many of you guys have ever seen a professional, when I say a professional, I mean someone who works somewhere, gets paid to do something who's not good at their job? Okay. How many of you ever find somebody who's not good at their job who's been doing it for a long time? Okay. This proves that just doing something for 10,000 hours doesn't make you awesome. Um, because not only do you have to continue to do it, but you have to continue to strive to improve. They, they say that there's this 50-hour mark where it takes a lot of effort. When you first start doing something, you have to try really hard. Uh, I don't know if you ever watched a baby learn to walk, but you probably don't think about the fact that walking is hard work until you watch a baby, and they're like, gee, poof. Biff, 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 and you oh, and you really want to like be there for them and like help them because you feel bad that they're landing on their face, but at the same time, you're like, it's part of learning to walk. Like, I can't, if I just catch you all the time, if I'm just holding, you'll never learn. So you're like, oh, I love you, I'll pray for you. And so, 
You watch them and they biff it and they biff it and they biff it. And then they start to get it and they start walking and then they fall for a little bit. And then they're like, I, I think they're past this. And they start to run. And then they're like, run, 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 bam. Ooh. And, and, and there's this process. But after a while, uh, eventually, hopefully, you guys walk and normally don't biff it on your face. Like, and normally, most, I bet most of you guys don't go, I'm going to walk. All right, all right. Right leg. Yeah. Oh, counterbalance with the arms. Yeah. Left leg. Oh, yeah. I've got this. Yeah. Like, what? Well, well after sometime, they say it's about 50 hours after doing something that it becomes automatic. That you can begin to do it without thinking about it. And this is where a lot of people stay and they stop improving because they do something until they don't have to work at it so hard anymore and then they just keep doing the exact same. But I, I begin to look into this with like typing. How many of you guys had to take typing in school? All right, that's good, because most jobs now involve typing. Um, it's either typing or manual labor, but that's kind of where it's at, and some of you guys are in manual labor and still have to type, so good luck. Um, but as you got to enter things, but this is, this is it. I, I did some research and discovered there are those who type called search and pack, or search and destroy. They bust out the one finger, like, Wacha! Now, if you are awesome at pack and destroy, you can type up to 40 words a minute. Now, if you can type 40 words a minute with, with the peck method, you, you are just ridiculous. Now, even at that, as far as I've seen, people that peck still have to kind of glance at where they're pecking. Now, if someone goes, I'm not just going to do that, I'm going to push myself to learn to type well, to lay my hands out the way that they tell me in typing class and actually learn where the keys are, um, in, in our office, I think I asked everybody, I made everyone take a typing test a couple years ago, and we had people in, the, in there that could type almost 70 words a minute. Um, you get somebody who's really good, and they can type over 100 words a minute. Um, and if you're going to go, what's the elite level of typing like this? It's like 120 or something like that. that they can just, and they can do it without looking. They can sit there, and you get somebody who's good, I'm, okay, I can do this, and I'm not even that good. I can take a book, set it right here, look at the book, and type, and type what I'm reading, um, and I'm not that good. But when you, you go, I want to get better, I'm going to push myself, all of a sudden, it allows you to go to new levels. As I begin to think about this, Jeremiah 29, 13, I begin to put some things in perspective. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I begin to go, we, we, we train to get a medal. We train, and I'm amazed at some of you guys that play high school sports. Some of you guys play some kind of a high school sport. Wow, a bunch of them are missing. They must be in practice. Okay, um, but here, here's the thing. I, I'm amazed at how many people give up so many things to play sports in high school. Some of them are hoping that they can be good enough to pay for college. And so they're like, I am devoting all of this time to this and destroying my body for hopefully $100,000. Because I am hoping that if I can do this well enough, I'm going to get about $25,000 a year towards my tuition so that I can pay for four years of school. Or, you know what, so I, I'm sitting here and I'm, I, I, I'm, they're not sitting, they're working really hard. But I begin to look at this, this whole idea, and the Bible's talking about us training and going, well, how hard are we seeking God? It's great to train, to type, 
going, hey, I want a job where they pay me money. Like legit money, not pennies. Hey, I want, um, I want to be able to play a sport. I want to be able to do these things. But looking at it going, well, how hard am I training after God? You go, how do you train after God? Let me, tra- let me define this. Training. Take notes, go ahead and write this down. Training is the process of preparing yourself to handle things the way you want to. Training is the process of preparing yourself to handle things the way you want to. That's physically, mentally, and instinctive reactionally. These Olympians go through an enormous amount of work to get themselves both physically prepared to perform the way that they want to, mentally performed, and to re- not just to think right, but to react right. I don't know if you, my my, my uh, brother-in-law got into kickboxing for a while. And it was funny. He, he was starting at it, and he did it for fun for a little bit. And then um, the guy who was training him, who was a world champion kickboxer, uh, goes, hey, I could make you the Australian um, champion in kickboxing. And I watched like a light bulb begin to come on in my brother-in-law. This is before he was my brother-in-law. But he's like, whoa. And all of a sudden, he started to train. He started to train for real. And while I was standing there talking to him, he's talking to somebody like this. He's talking to this guy over here. Somebody walks up on this side of him and just goes like this. And while he's talking, my my brother-in-law isn't thinking at all. He just goes, And he was prepared to block a kick, not because he thought, oh, this guy's going to hit me. I better, but just because he was so programmed when the foot comes up, here's how you block. And he's ready to respond because if you get into a kickboxing match and you're like, I know what to do. When they punch me, I need to block it. Wait, they're punching me. How should I block it? Oh, which arm should I use? I should use this one. You know what happens? Bam! And you're out. You don't have time to sit here and go, what do I do? You need to program yourself so that when this happens, you're just, boom, what just happened? Oh, I just, I, they just blocked it. I, I watched this when I began to drive. I remember I got my permit. I was driving, and somebody flashed their brights at me because they thought I had my brights on, and I didn't. I'm like, I'm going to show them I don't. I'm going to flash my brights back so they can see that I didn't have my brights on. And I'm like, yeah, grab it, flash the brights. By the time I made it to the stick to, to flash the brights, the car was back there. I'm like, blast too slow. And then it was like a year or two later, I'd been driving for a year or two, and uh, somebody's coming at me, and they do it, and I'm just like that, and like between the time that they flashed me and me flashing them back, they drove 10 feet. You're like, what? Why? Well, I didn't have to think. Flash them back means reach out, grab this, pull. Like, you just, it's my car. You just, you just do it. It becomes part of you. Like, you, you reach this point. But I begin to look at the fact that a lot of Christians don't put a lot of effort to seeking God. They just kind of go, you know what, hey, I'm just going to kind of make this New Year's resolution. What is a New Year's resolution? It's the point when somebody sees that they need to do something different, so they make a going, yeah, I should do that. But most of the time, it's not much of a commitment inside. There's not much change that happens in their life. It's just a desire and recognizing what they'd like. And some people legitly change, but if you don't make change in your life, then it just becomes, just it's nothing but a dream. And this is kind of how they, they treat their walk with God. And they get there on this kind of this autopilot, like I'm going to do a couple of things, but they don't really realize what they're doing. And so there's no growth in their walk with God. But we need to train to seek God. Second um, Chronicles chapter 12, verse 14, tells the story of Rehoboam. And if you guys don't know who Rehoboam is, uh, his father's name is Solomon. 
His father was a king in Israel. In fact, he was the third king in Israel. And as, as he's, Rehoboam gets the throne, we, we get a verse that begins to describe Rehoboam. As it begins to give an account of his life. In 2 Chronicles 12, 14, it says, He did evil because he did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord. It doesn't say he did evil because he was evil. It doesn't say he did evil because he set his goal to be a goober. Like, why did he do evil? Because he didn't set his heart to seek the Lord. Have you decided, have you purposed in your heart, have you prepared your heart to seek the Lord. Because if you don't choose on purpose, you won't go the right way. It is easier to fall down a hill than it is to go up it. How many of you guys have ever spilled water? What way does it go? Down. Why? Gravity. What if it doesn't like gravity? Where does it go? Why? Gravity, because it's easier. Gravity makes it easier, but it's easier to go down than it is to go up. You will never find an Olympian who didn't work to get there. How many of you guys want to have an awesome relationship with God? It's not going to happen unless you work. Following God isn't always easy. And the Bible tells us that we're supposed to train. Because the Bible's going to tell you things that you don't want to hear. Um. Let's start with Ephesians chapter 6. We'll go with the first. Anyone can tell me, what is the first commandment with a promise? Anyone, anyone learned this scripture in Sunday school? Or their parents made them learn it? Ha, there's a couple of them there. My dad made me learn this. Honor your, Honor your father and mother. We have an award winner. I'm like, I, somebody's parent made them learn this. I know it. My boys are going to learn that verse. Okay, so. Honor your father and mother. Do you realize, don't even raise your hands. That's not always easy. I remember. I got into an argument with my mom. I have no idea what it was. This was a long time ago. And when I, when I did, I was sure my mom was wrong. And since I don't remember what the argument was about, I cannot prove who was right and who was wrong many, many years later. But in this being so angry with, with mom over this deal and wanting so bad to rebel, I ended up, I got on my bike because my house was full of life. And I biked down the road to the cemetery. Um, not because I wanted to be with dead people, but because they don't talk. And so I, I got there, I set my bike down, and I'm like, I'm all alone. And I just kind of walked over there and sat on someone's tombstone. They didn't seem to complain, so it was all good. And so as I'm there, I'm praying, I'm like, God, I, my mom's crazy. I don't want to listen. I don't want to obey. I think that that rule should apply to everyone whose parents know what they're doing. Like, um, but in spite of my ranting and raving to God, the verse did not change in my Bible, much to my disappointment. And as I was praying, I, I realized that no matter whether my mom was right or whether she was wrong, I had a choice to make. Because the Bible told me to honor my mom, and I wanted to honor God and dishonor my mom. But I had to sit here and sit here and go, well, if you told me to honor mom, I can't dishonor mom and honor you. It doesn't work. It's, it just doesn't work. These are opposite directions. I can't go left and right at the same time. 
And so I have to choose. Will I honor you both or will I dishonor you both? And I, I sat there and I prayed, yelled loudly, and, and I biked home and I honored my mom. Because I decided it didn't matter if my mom was right, it didn't matter if she was wrong, that I had a commitment and that I decided I would honor God and I would follow God no matter what the cost, even if that cost meant putting up with parents who didn't understand. And in hindsight, I bet now my mom was probably right. Most of the time they were right, but even if they were wrong. In fact, I'm going to show you a time when parents are wrong, or were wrong. It's not, they weren't your parents. Luke chapter 2, verse 50. We're catching up to Jesus as a young man. And while Jesus was a young man, he was about 12 years old, they left him and went home without him. And they left him in Jerusalem. And when they did, they finally, they come back after three days of losing Jesus. Like they lost God. And that's kind of sad. Okay, so three days, they come back to him. And they're like, where were you? And he's like, I was about my father's business. And this conversation takes place. And it says in Luke 2, verse 50, they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Do you know what it means when the Bible says his parents didn't get it? It means they didn't get it. It means they didn't understand. It means they were wrong and he was right. Imagine that. He's God. Now, so how did he respond? He responded, crazy woman, I'm Jesus. I'm God in the flesh. Shut up and get in your place. Like, like, like is, is, this, is this the response that Jesus gives? No, it says here, it says, his parents didn't understand. He went down with them, came to the others, and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured all these things in, his heart, in her heart. I mean, you mean they were wrong and he honored them anyways? Yep. So what if my mom's crazy? <laughs> Guess what? What did Jesus do? What example did he set? And all of a sudden, I begin to look at this going, wait. So when what I want and what God says collide, I get to find out. Am I making a New Year's resolution that I don't intend to keep? Or have I set my eyes on the prize and am I focused ahead of me? In, in Hebrews 12, 2, it says this. Looking to, uh, to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Right? The right hand of the throne of God. It says Jesus looked at the joy set before him. You know what that joy is? You. The joy is being able to restore his relationship with you. It says he set this joy before him. And for that, he endured the shame. Because once you have a goal, you can push through things. If you have no vision, you will go nowhere. If you have no goal, you will go nowhere. You are like water. You know where you go? Wherever it's the easiest. And that is why our world is full of people who are supposed to be grown up that are living in their parents' basements playing video games. Because they have no goal. So what do they do? The same thing over and over. Whatever is easiest and most fun at the moment, and they go nowhere. An Olympian has a goal. Do you realize that nobody in their right mind would put the dedication that those Olympians put it in without a goal? Do you realize how much pain? They have to go through special training to work, to learn how to push through the pain and to work to have their muscles to continue to work with the amount of lactic acid that builds up in them when they perform at that level. I did a whole bunch of reading this week on 
on their routines, on what they were doing. When we stand in front of God, when we stand in front of God, that is the day that we're supposed to live for. That day is supposed to cause us to live different. We are told in 1 Corinthians that we're going to stand in front of God and that our life, all the art we've done is going to be tested by fire. It's, I have way too many notes. Let me gross a couple people out. Okay. Two more stories, I think. Okay, so I talked to somebody when I was in college that I worked with. And as we were having this conversation, and she, I would say she didn't know Jesus. I think she thought that she might know Jesus and just wasn't living for him. Um, but as we were working together, one day she looks at me and she goes, do you mean that God actually expects us to obey the Bible? Do you mean like he actually expects us to do that? And was blown away. Perspective changes things. Are you living for the moment and is the Bible just an inconvenience? Or are you living for that day? Because Jesus said that if you're living for that day, it changes how you live. In, in Matthew chapter 5, he says, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Is that kind of disturbing? Like, oh yeah, couldn't stop looking at porn, so I just gouged my eye out. Left it on the counter. Like, it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Like, does that, that seem extreme? Meet Aaron Ralston. Can you put up Aaron's picture? For those of you guys who don't know who this is, his name is Aaron. They just made a movie about him. He was climbing um, in some canyons, and he slipped, and a boulder slipped at the same time, and pinned his arm up against um, between a large boulder and the edge of a cliff. If you have a queasy stomach and don't like gross things, close your eyes. For real. Go ahead and close them if you've got a queasy stomach. Next one. He had an option. After five days of being pinned, he had to decide, do I want my arm or my life? Next one. He cut his arm off. Next one. That's his arm. Next one. Okay. If you queasy eyes, you can look now. All right. And you go, why did you just show me those disturbing pictures? Because I wanted you to get something. If you just think about cutting off your arm, it's gross. Not it's gross, it's stupid. Don't just hack your arm off, okay? Taking notes right there, don't hack off your arm off. Okay, but now, when you have perspective and you go, it's my arm or it's my life, all of a sudden you go, you know what? The smart thing to do is cut it off. Because he could have been a skeleton found years later. Or we can see the picture of him where he's got a prosthetic. We read this passage where Jesus says, hey, you've got heaven 
to gain and hell to be avoided. If your hand's going to take you to hell, hack it off. And we look and we go, ooh, that's an exaggeration. No, it's not. Now, there are things that are easier to cut off than your hand. If you're struggling with pornography, you can gouge out your eye, but it's a whole lot easier to throw your way at your computer. Go back, back in time and get a flip phone. Like, there, there's easier things to do. You don't have to resort first to hacking those things off. There's a lot of other things that are easy to hack off. There's friendships. But I want to ask you this. Are you training? Are you following God? No matter the cost? Or are you hitting this news going, well, it's a good idea. I know I probably should, but I'm not actually going to live different. Because the Bible tells us that those that don't actually live different, he calls them lukewarm. He goes, I don't want any part of you. Are you going to live for me or not? All you're doing is tricking yourself. I bet that in here, we've got some people that are sold out, that are excited to live for God. And there are some that needed a little kick in the pants. They're like, oh yeah, yeah, I got I to, you know, I need, to, I need to, to put God first. I need to go, all right, what do I need to change to become what God wants me to be? I want to live for the day that I stand in front of God, not for all my friends. And whether that means I got to cut off some friends, whether that means I need to cut off and, and delete an account, whether that means I need to get a different phone, tell my parents I don't want internet on my phone, I don't want to be able to get messages anymore that have pictures, I don't want to do any. It doesn't matter what it is, but you go, I need to step up to this level. And there are others who say, you know what? I, I may have come to church a lot, but all I've had was kind of like this uh, New Year's resolution experience where I recognized that I was in sad shape and made a commitment to do something I never did. And some of you guys go, I've never even committed to doing anything. I want to make a commitment to follow Jesus no matter what the cost. I want to cut off my old life and I want to begin to live for him. If, if, if that's you, I want, to, I want to give you a chance to make a commitment to make Jesus your Lord, not just your idea, but the one that you live for. In fact, I'm going to do it a little different. Normally I have everyone bow their heads, close their eyes, and we give you a moment of privacy, but I really want to do something kind of fun. If you say, you know what? Maybe you come to church a lot, but you say, you know what? No, it, it's been a game. It's been, it's been a New Year's thing. It's been a recognizing I needed to do something, but I never really did it. I, my walk with God does not affect the way that I live. I want to begin to live for God every day. I'm going to ask you to stand up. If you haven't already done this, go ahead, stand up right now. So that's me. What? said, if you say today, I want to follow God no matter the cost, and it has not been the way that you've been living, I want to invite you to stand. Go ahead and stand up. Say, that's me. I want to follow God. I don't care what the person next to me is thinking. I want to follow God no matter the cost. If you've all done that, that's great. But if you say, no, I haven't. I am not living for God wholeheartedly. Then I want to challenge you to make a stand and go, I will cut off what people think. I will cut off the way that I do things because I want to live for God no matter what it looks like, no matter what it costs me. Awesome. There are some that are, that are chatting, that are wondering, that are going, all right, is it me? Am I going to do it? All right, we're going to pray. God, go ahead and bow your heads. God, I thank you for each person here that you challenge us, that you call us, that you have a plan and a purpose for us. God, that we could train, 
God, that we could seek you, that we could put in the commitment to seek you no matter what the cost, that we wouldn't be New Year's resolution people that recognize the need and do nothing, but that we would be the Olympians, that we would be the ones that pay the greatest price to push past the pain to follow you no matter what it takes for the day that we stand in front of you. That we could know that we are prepared for that day, that we will be honored on that day in front of you. God, I thank you that we can be those people. And I thank you that as we commit to that, God, that your hand would be on us, you would give us favor and guide us in it. And I thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.